Luther decides pretty early on when he discovers the gospel that the thing that's going to reform the church is not him, uh, not a university, not any church figure, but it's going to be the word of God itself. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast, brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. My name is Rich Rudowski. I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at LBT. Today we are marking Reformation Day, and we welcome Dr. Eric Herman to the podcast. Dr. Herman is Associate Professor and Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, USA, where he is also the Director of the Center for Reformation Research and the Director of Concordia Theology, an online platform in Concordia Seminary's Theological Research and Publication Department. Check that out at concordiatheology.org. We got together to talk about Luther's Bible translation and Reformation as a program not only of correcting theology, but more importantly of reforming pastoral care in the church. And as you'll hear, many of the things that we take for granted today about our practice of the Christian faith find their genesis in this time of Reformation, especially the central role of the Bible and of preaching. Enjoy today's conversation. Welcome to a special Reformation edition of the Essentially Translatable podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Herman, Chairman of Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and we're going to talk about Martin Luther and the Bible here in Reformation 2020. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, First of all, we like to always have our audience get to know our guests and how you got involved in history. I don't really know a lot of folks when they're little kids who say, yeah, yeah, I want to be a history professor. So how did we get here (laughs) to uh, doing history at Concordia Seminary? Yeah, well, I guess it's, it has to do with, I guess, my interest in, in Martin Luther mm-hmm. when I started studying for the seminary, and that probably started a little bit before in college. I grew up Lutheran. Okay. My parents were uh, immigrants from Germany, and so, yeah, we grew up in a Lutheran church. And, yeah, as I started reading Luther, like a lot of us uh, do at the seminary, became really interested in this theologian as a teacher for the church, as uh, someone that has some unique insights and is never boring to read. Mm-hmm. And I found that a lot of the questions I had uh, centered around some things that he brought up. So when I decided I want to do graduate work, I thought I could find myself uh, not getting bored okay. for the necessary period of time by studying Luther. <laughs> and how long have you been at Concordia Seminary? So I've been teaching here since 2005, so 15 years now. And uh, yeah, teaching in the history department here. All right. Let's kind of jump into talking Reformation and Luther. So at the point of the Reformation, at the, the point of the Reformation when Luther comes along, what is the state of the usage of the Bible at that point before, I guess, before the Reformation? It's standing in theological studies, how it's used. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So on the eve of the Reformation, the Bible, of course, is still the central text for the church but it is mostly still being used in Latin. So uh, the Bible being used in church is Latin translation, and kind of the official text of the church is uh, in Latin. And by this time, I mean, that was, a, that was a good move back when everybody spoke Latin. But by this time, there are so many developed languages that only the educated can read uh, the Bible or even understand it when it's read. So 
There are vernacular translations of the Bible, that is Bible translations in a variety of other languages, German and, and French and, and English, but they're not endorsed or supported by the church. And they, so they tend to be sort of these kind of rogue projects and they certainly don't have any particular sanction. And they're usually not very good translations either, so that none of them really catch on. So then when folks study theology, how far do they go with the Bible? And, and is it the, the main focus of their theological study at that time? Or is there something else? So to become a theologian in Luther's day uh, is to go through university. And the progress of that curriculum or that program illustrates, I think, the place that the Bible had landed in theology. So you begin by studying philosophy and then after that, you do what's called uh, cursory lectures on the scriptures. And that is basically you take a book of the Bible and you read the received or authoritative commentary on the scriptures. It's called the gloss. And then after that, then you start to study and lecture on the, uh, the theological textbook that was popular at the time called Peter Lombard's Sentences. It's four volumes of systematic theology, really. And that is the culmination of your theological training. Okay. So if you just sort of imagine it, it's philosophy as a foundation, Bible as the next step, and then the, the final step, the culmination, is this uh, systematic theology textbook. And actually the careers of theologians in the universities tended to be uh, a lifetime of lecturing on that systematic theology textbook. So just kind of imagining it that way, mm -hmm. the Bible is a means to an end rather than the, large, the central focus of theology. It's always been an authoritative text for theology, but here it's, it's certainly not the matter that people are looking at and focusing on. Okay, so then when we think of Luther being a, an Old Testament professor in his early career, at least, that's where he's at. He's at that sort of middle ground, uh, that middle spot there after philosophy he's teaching on, on the Old Testament text. Well, no, actually, so Luther, Luther goes through that whole process yeah. and, um, and even at that time writes to friends and, and talks about how he sort of fondly enjoyed that period of lecturing on the scriptures, but now he's got a lecture on this other stuff. Once he becomes a doctor of theology in 1512, then it's his turn as a doctor of theology to set the agenda of what is going to be lectured on. And he chooses not Lombard sentences or systematic theology, but to lecture on the Psalms. And he begins by lecturing on the Psalms for two years, and then he lectures on Romans, and then he lectures on Galatians, and then Hebrews. In other words, Luther decides from the beginning that the Bible is going to be the center of his lecturing task. And so at that point, he's not doing these cursory lectures. He's doing it as a, as a theologian, and it's, it's shaping the way in which he believes theology should be done in the university which then has a trickle-down effect from his perspective on how the faith is going to be taught even at a parish level. Right. Yeah, so the theologians then, as you've described, will at least touch on Scripture, but then go somewhere else. For the average person in the parish, what is their exposure to the Bible at this time? The exposure to the Bible in the parish is usually through preaching or some devotional material that's uh, passed on. And it's just really dependent on, on whether or not they actually have a biblical preacher or not. The okay. central feature of uh, worship isn't really preaching at that time, but the priest performing uh, the sacrament. So there isn't a lot of exposure. And the exposure that is there tends to be just on the uh, lectionary readings. When Luther first 
found the Bible at the university, he was surprised at how large it was. That there were stories in there he had never heard his entire life. So, you know, when people think of the, the Reformation, and it was a big deal uh, three years ago for the 500th anniversary, they think at least of the launch being the 95 theses being posted on the door of the Castle Church or however that worked. So what's, the, you know, what's your take on that? As the start of the Reformation, the 95 Theses, it's a decent starting point. At least it's this. It's the time that Luther became a public figure. And okay. so the ideas that he started promoting, now other people were paying attention. Of course, it was a, a time of immediate conflict. Uh, and so that, that's part of it as well. But I would say the other thing that's helpful for us is that the 95 Theses is an effort of Luther to conduct theology for the sake of pastoral care. I mean, that's the real interesting feature for him is indulgences is bad pastoral care. Yeah. And so uh, it's helpful for me to see, and I think for all of us to see that the Reformation begins as a dispute over proper care of souls. Yeah, and that's a, a huge distinction, I think, what you're saying is that uh, there could have been, or there may be folks that are really focused on the academic elements of theology, but Luther saying, okay, but there's all these regular people in the care of their souls at stake and who's attending to that. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And I, I think that even Luther's interest in changing the way things are done at the academic level is motivated by how he personally understood the Christian faith growing up and in the monastery. In other words, he recognized that there was a pastoral urgency to getting this right. And so he felt like reforming the church began first there, but it would immediately have effects upon, upon the people, which shaped the various projects he did, including the translation of the Bible itself. Yeah, so walk us through how we get from Luther and the 95 Theses to his translation of the Bible, a little bit about the timeline and how we get from one to the other. Yeah, so I think Luther has a set of reforming projects that he wants to carry out first at the university, and then he starts working on devotional material. And this is, of course, after he really becomes confident in what the gospel is. And in one sense, the 95 Theses is an interruption of that work. Okay. It feels like he's distracted by it, at least by the controversy. But as it unfolds, he realizes that all of this is part of this larger project of restoring and reforming proper pastoral care. And the way to do that, he sees, is to reshape the preaching and the centrality of scriptures in the lives of individual people through preaching, devotional literature, everything. So he almost programmatically takes on every major devotional practice or worship practice and reshapes it according to a new understanding of the gospel. And so by the time you get to the culmination of this case against Luther, which we all know, 1521, the Diet of Worms, where he has a stand against the emperor and the papacy, he's already been taking on a few small translation projects that he can squeeze in along the way. And then when he is whisked away after that hearing, he's kidnapped to protect him and brought to the, the Wartburg Castle. Then he's, uh, some people think he's dead. Nobody knows where he is. And he has the chance now to uh, sit down and do some work on translation and devotional literature, which is what he does. His two main projects while he's at the Wartburg is writing a series of uh, sample evangelical sermons uh, in German with uh, some instruction on how to uh, read the Gospels, and then a translation of the New Testament, which he amazingly 
accomplishes in about 11 weeks. Wow. <laughs> and, and it's seen as one of the most significant moments in, um, in not only in translation history, but in German literature. The method that he uses and the staying power of that translation shapes the rest of his work. So talk a little bit about the, the method, I guess, and the, why it was such a, an effective translation. And it's still, is it still used to this day or at least some dated revision of it? Yeah, the, the, base, the Luther translation, and of course there are, there are revisions of it from his own life and then later, I think the, the, the latest revision of it was in the 20th century, mid 20th century, but it's still considered the Luther translation. Okay. Uh, it's still the, the, the primary translation. So I think his significance is, uh, first of all, a real understanding of um, how, and his real interest in how German expression works. So his goal was to translate, not just word for word, but I think maybe in translation theory, we talk about it as um, a dynamic equivalent, I think maybe is the, is the phrase that's often used in translation. He's, mm-hmm. he's interested in, as he says, making these resistant Hebrew professors or prophets speak in authentic German. And he does spend time when he's at the Vorper going down to the market to hear the way in which the common person speaks. Mm-hmm. What are the phrases that they use? And he, he grows up as a peasant, so he's not in a, a, a German elite, uh, even though he's highly educated. And so he feels like he has some common sense of the way in which people speak. But then when he actually, after this, when he translates the rest of the Bible, he, he surrounds himself with a good group of folks, four or five, six people. And he says sometimes they spend an entire month just on one verse trying to get the phrases right so that the ideas are meaningful in the German language. And that's also the point of controversy is that he's accused of changing the biblical text uh, mm-hmm. in some places significantly. But his argument is, is uh, this is how you make it meaningful in the German tongue. So this Bible translation, then, if we think about the Reformation as more than just the singular event or just the nailing of the 95 Theses, but this process that takes, well, you know, decades or more, what is the role of this Bible translation in the Reformation in Germany and then and elsewhere? Luther decides pretty early on when he discovers the gospel that the thing that's going to reform the church is not him. Uh, not a university, not any church figure, but it's going to be the word of God itself. Naturally, Luther's bringing the Bible into the German language allows potentially everyone to be able to now access the fullness of the text. And so the goal that all might be taught of God is realized when they can actually hear and listen and read the word of God. Of course, you have to be able to read, and literacy is not as prominent and so one of the major efforts of the Reformation is to establish schools. Uh, it becomes an educational movement, including, you know, public schooling is really initiated, establishing schools for both boys and girls uh, so that it's possible to read the scriptures as well as being productive members of society. So the impact of translating into German also is a, a wave of, of an educational movement. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the, the translation itself doesn't just shape the German language or the German understanding of the scriptures, but especially the English translations are deeply indebted. Tyndale studied Luther's translation very closely and saw it as the paradigm for his own translation into English. Sometimes he, he translated verbatim Luther's own introductions and prefaces to each book of the Bible. 
and of course, Tyndale himself was, was a genius and very talented, and, and so was Coverdale, Miles Coverdale, mm. and the folks that worked in the, on the King James Bible in the 17th century. But Luther's translation was seen as the paradigm. The decisions that he made were often followed very carefully and closely. So in many ways, it shaped the whole Reformation in especially the place, of, the place that the scriptures placed in the life and piety of, of everyday Christians. Yeah, and I think that's really an important thing to highlight is that a number of assumptions that we as Lutheran Christians or evangelical Christians have today about what happens when you go to church, the worship life of the church, the access to scripture and personal devotion life, these things all find their origin in this process of this reformation of pastoral care, right? Yeah, exactly. And even the notion that the sermon is a central feature of what we do when we come together in church was not the main characteristic of worship on, on the eve of the Reformation. But with a, with a Bible that is translated into language and preaching and exposition of the scripture, chapter by chapter, something that's a hallmark of Protestant uh, experience of worship, all of that finds its, its root in, in this pastoral care project and reform. One of the uh, favorite Luther quotes to folks that around uh, Lutheran Bible translators is from this letter he writes to Johannes Lang, where he says, I wish that every village had its own interpreter and that this book alone would live in the hands, eyes, ears, and hearts of all people. When, when did he write that statement? Uh, how does that speak to the situation and, and what Luther was trying to accomplish? Yeah, Johannes Lang was a close friend of his and he was with him in the university. He's an Augustinian monk, just like Luther. And Lang eventually left Wittenberg and went back to Erfurt. And Luther would regularly update Lang on what he called their collective project of reform. They kind of discovered the gospel together. And he wrote all the way through 1520 on his plans of translating the Bible into German along these lines. And again, the, what's so beautiful about that statement and what you can see is sort of resonating behind what Lang and, and Luther were hoping to do is all of their work was to just reshape the piety and deepen the Christian faith of all people and that moving the Bible into as the central text of Christian life rather than all of these other devotional texts was seen as the way to do this. It was a real reliance upon the power of God through the word to change people's hearts. Yeah, and I think the advent of inexpensive printing and access to personal copies of Scripture, again, uh, every time I, I hear about this period of time and, and what Luther and others were accomplishing, it's just amazing how much of what we take for granted. So this was a new thing in Christian history and human history to have this ready access to print material. No, that's, that's right. And of course, the printing press was invented in the 15th century, and one of the first major texts that Gutenberg printed was, was the scriptures. Then, of course, it was they're still trying to figure out uh, the best way and fastest, most efficient way to do it. By the time you get to, uh, to Luther's period, and in, in many ways, Luther is a catalyst for this, mm -hmm. because he's printing smaller works and works that are exciting. Printers have to figure out how to make things inexpensively and, and quickly. And so the scriptures benefit from this flurry of printing technology so that they can be made inexpensively for not just the elite princes to have their own special Bible or just churches to have their own lectionary, but common people who can read now can get uh, small and affordable uh, texts uh, of scriptures 
usually not entire texts, but portions of texts until Luther finally gets the whole thing translated in the 1530s. To what extent was Luther sort of, you, do you think, cognizant of this technology and, and really trying to take advantage of it versus he just kind of got swept up in it because it was there and people just took his stuff and ran with it? I think that most people who study this recognize that Luther was aware of the benefit of the printing press and exploited it in a yeah. way, uh, you know, intentionally exploited it. So they got a printing press in Wittenberg. He worked with the local uh, court artist to help create uh, illustrative woodcuts for a lot of his, everything that he printed, whether it was a little treatise or a pamphlet, or finally the magisterial uh, 1534 Bible that had 117 woodcuts by Cranach. So he saw it as a technological tool that needed to be leveraged for the gospel. And there's actually been some recent books about how, you know, he, he and Cranach created the idea of a title page okay. in which you could see from a distance, oh, that's clearly a, a Luther pamphlet because it's got his name prominently printed on there, a brand really mm -hmm. in a sense. Okay. Yeah. So if Luther was around in the 21st century, would he be using social media, you think, and capitalizing on that? Or how do you think that translates? Yeah, the, uh, uh, the analogy between the printing press as the new medium of, uh, for communicating ideas and how we do it today with social media, Facebook, Twitter, all of those things, has, th that connection actually was made quite frequently uh, at the 500th anniversary. And I, okay. think that's, I think that's a valuable analogy. Obviously, uh, social media can be used in damaging ways, but uh, Luther would have leveraged this as uh, a way to get the word of God out faster and more efficiently in a way that uh, could have only dreamed of in the 16th century. So um, he was very progressive in that sense. Yeah. So some more recent translation theory, and like this uh, with English Bibles, there's always this uh, ongoing conversation about uh, dynamic equivalence versus literary equivalence or literary function. So some writers say that Luther's translation theory was based on the whole, the idea that the whole translation had to support the central theological tenet of salvation by grace through faith alone, and maybe that he made adjustments in translation because he wanted to be sure that that doctrine shone through. And then some folks say maybe that's not a, a good translation principle. Would you say that's a fair characterization of Luther's work? You know, it's kind of a contrast between there's the work of biblical exegesis for proclamation and teaching, but then there's expectations for translation theory that you represent the ideas of a text without necessarily resolving ambiguity unduly, and there's always mm -hmm. that tension there. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the distinction. So Luther, there's a real tension for Luther. On the one hand, he really wants, and in some places he retains kind of clunky wooden literalism, mm -hmm. even though he could resolve it in certain ways. He feels like, I mean, he has a real devotion to the, the letters of the text, right? Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, because he sees this as an act of pastoral care, the most important point of scripture is not just having scripture, but, but grasping it, uh, being grasped by it, yeah. uh, and hearing clearly the central message of it. Uh, so just having a Bible for Luther and as many passages as you can is not the important thing. What's important is the Christ in scripture of which he says, scripture is sort of like the swaddling clothes or manger of Christ that holds Christ. But, but the thing that saves isn't the Bible, it's the right. Jesus of the Bible. Yeah. And so in that sense, he's unapologetic 
uh, about making sure that what is the most important thing in the scriptures, which is derived from the scriptures. I mean, he's, he doesn't feel like he's imposing an alien thing. He's, he, he got it from the scriptures themselves, would be as clear as possible. And if that means he adjusts a word, adds a word or leaves out a word so that it communicates that clearly. And of course, the most famous example of this is the addition of the word alone in Romans 3.28, or that we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. Okay. And if, you know, the word alone isn't there, but he justifies that, no pun intended, by arguing that this is actually, A, the way the German language uh, works, and secondly, that is Paul's point. Uh, yes. And to get that across as uh, clear as possible is a greater benefit than to be literalistic. Right, yeah. So he, in a, in a sense, makes the argument that it is implicit in that original text, but a German speaker would make it explicit. So he has to, to be more natural to make that choice. Right. 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 So one of the, the things I find ironic, I guess, is that Luther was so passionate about the central point or the central role of scripture in the life of theological formation in the life of the church and the life of the, the priesthood and the laity that he wanted to send, you know, put it front and center he wrote voluminously, and then as his life went on, people got really interested in starting to catalog all of his work and his writing and to publish that. So like today in the English language, the CPH and Fortress uh, set of Luther's works is well slated to have something like 80 plus volumes. And there's a German, uh, several German editions, I'm sure, the Weimar edition being one of the most prolific. How big is that thing? That's over a hundred folio volumes. Yeah. yeah. And so, so Luther in his lifetime, this starts to happen. And I love that the first time they're going to publish this edition of Luther's works, they ask him to write an introduction to it. Tell us a little bit about what he says in the introduction yeah. to Luther's works. So uh, the irony doesn't escape Luther either. I mean, he thinks this is really ridiculous. His whole project is to bring the scriptures as a central text and to, and to not be so excited about texts that are written by, uh, uh, by sinful human beings. And here they are trying to collect and study his own works. So he knows it's going to happen against his better uh, wishes and judgment. So he writes an introduction that basically instructs people on how not to read him, but how to read the scriptures. <laughs> so he first talks about how, uh, you know, we finally got to the point where we can actually read the Bible in, in our own language. And now we want to replace it with all these dumb works uh, by this guy named Martin Luther. So I'll use this introductory preface space to tell you uh, how best to, to, to read the Bible. And there he says that um, the best way to read the Bible is to, to recognize that uh, one does it in prayer. One does it by deeply and daily meditating upon the words of scriptures, trusting that the Holy Spirit that you prayed for will illuminate you uh, and change you through that. And then uh, when life uh, strikes you, when you are filled with all the things in the world that seem to contradict the words of God that you have read, it drives you back to prayer and back to scripture. So the entire Christian life is this, um, this circular return to relying upon the promises and word of God. If you read a little Luther in between, uh, you're, it's best to forget it and move on to the Bible again. <laughs> Yeah, I love, and as you mentioned, Luther is is kind of fun to read, and he he says, uh, sort of resigned, like you said, like, okay, very well, let the project proceed then, but I make one request of the reader that uh, he not let the reading of my work in any way hinder his reading of the Bible. And for me, um, 
I read that a long time ago and have taken that to heart every time I think I want to dig into some Luther. I say, okay, where am I at with uh, reading the Bible um, to sure. at least give Dr. Luther uh, one of his uh, requests? Yeah, our, us, the, uh, the Reformation historians are the uh, sort of worst transgressors of this principle, obviously. <laughs> but we end up spending all of our time trying to figure out what Luther said about it. But, um, but yeah, the irony is really uh, is there. And um, again, sort of exhibits how central uh, the idea of pastoral care and the reformation of souls is to this entire project. So what do you think Luther might say about the current state of biblical literacy or, or Bible usage in our churches and the academy today? Oh, my. Probably something similar to what he said in the 1520s. Um, you know, he translated the Bible into German and sermons were being promulgated. And then they visited the churches and realized that nobody knew yeah. anything about the Christian faith. <laughs> and he was so distressed. And uh, he wrote a catechism and did some more works to try to illustrate this. But um, I think in, on the one hand, I think he'd be pleased at uh, the capacity of Western society to access the scriptures. I mean, yeah. the widespread literacy would be seen as a gift of God from his perspective. The fact that people who can read don't read the scriptures or know so little about it, even Christians, yeah. uh, would be seen as one of the most egregious uh, uh, neglects of a gift. Yeah, I think, and I think I, a lot of uh, teachers of the faith uh, share that frustration on, um, on how, do we, how do we help people become more biblically literate? There are more things filling our ears and competing for our time than in Luther's day. Absolutely. And, um, so yeah, that's a, that's a great challenge. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to say thanks for your time with us today. We've been talking with Dr. Eric Herman from Concordia Seminary on a special Reformation edition of the Essentially Translatable podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Eric Herman from Concordia Seminary for joining us on the podcast today. I'm struck by what a gift we have in our ready access to scripture in so many forms and how in a sea of information coming at us in so many media everywhere all the time, we still have the opportunity to be taught of God, as the scriptures say, directly from his word. What a privilege to take that word in our hands and have God speak straight to our hearts. And what a privilege to continue that Reformation work with the Christian church all over the world that anyone who wishes may encounter God through his word and the language they understand best. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. Look for past episodes of the podcast at lbt.org podcast. Or find us and leave us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators' social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. The Essentially Translatable podcast is edited and produced by Andrew Olson and distributed by Sarah Lyons. Executive producer is Amy Gertz. Podcast artwork designed by Caleb Rodewald. Music written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Rich Radowski. So long for now. <laughs>